0: The scripture text this morning is Luke fourteen, fifteen through 24. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet."
1: I'm grateful that we were able to gather this morning despite some cold weather. Um, and it's been a few weeks, um, well, it's been one week off, but it's we've been in this vision series for a couple weeks now going through our vision statement at Christ Covenant Church. And so our vision statement is that Christ Covenant exists to love God's glory, so that we can love God's people and go out in love to God's world. And so the first Sunday of the new year, Tom gave us a vision of what it is to love God's glory. The Sunday following that Blair gave us a picture of loving God's people. And then this week we're going to look at uh, the parable that Mary just read to see what it is to love God's world. Um, And as we get into this, uh, parables can be a little bit tricky, so I want to kind of give us an idea of what that is uh, before we get into it too far. Uh, The Greek word there literally translates as to throw alongside. And so Jesus repeatedly in his ministry uses parables alongside uh, of his teaching to illustrate, Uh, it's allegorical usually to to help us understand or or put feet on what it is he's teaching. And so in this case, uh, he's giving us a picture of uh, what it is he's just taught in verses 12 and 13 and 14, and he's explaining it better with this parable. Um, And one of the things that's dangerous when you read parables is they can kind of be like a wax nose. Uh, If you don't really have the context of, of what you're looking at, you can kind of overemphasize certain parts and underemphasize certain other parts. And what can happen is you end up with a completely distorted meaning from what it's supposed to say. And so for that reason, uh, we're going to start back in verse 1 of chapter 14 just to try and get a a brief overview that leads us up to uh, Jesus's parable that we're going to look at today. So back in verse 1, it says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And so this is Jesus being invited. uh, It's a Sabbath day to a party at one of the rulers of the Pharisees' houses. And so he's there with a bunch of other Pharisees. And it's clear that he's not there because they want to learn from him. This isn't a humble invitation. Uh, It's sort of the opposite. Their goal is to catch him in some sort of false teaching or or maybe uh, see if they can outsmart him and trick him and say, okay, well, he, he's been leading all these people, but now we've, we've trapped him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, and yet, as Jesus repeatedly does throughout his ministry, he's going to turn the tables on him right away. And so the first thing Jesus does is he heals a, a man with a skin disease. And so he sort of turns on the heads the idea that the Pharisees thought they were the loving people and the leaders. And, and so Jesus shows that they misunderstood love. And then he tells uh, his first parable in this chapter in verses 7 to 11 uh, about this, uh, these people that would go to parties and they would always try and sit as close to the ruler or the king as possible. And they would do that so that they could be exalted. They would self-exalt themselves and get themselves in places of power. He says those people will be humbled, but rather the humble people, those who uh, are willing to accept a lowly seat, will often be exalted and brought back up. And then in verses 12 to 14, he comes back to teaching outside of a parable and he tells them when they host dinners and banquets and parties, they shouldn't be inviting just their friends. Instead, they ought to invite the disenfranchised. And so that's, he says in verse 13, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And he says, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, Jesus is saying those words to these Pharisees to not invite your friends to parties at a party with a bunch of the Pharisees' friends. And so, really, this is, he's creating some tension. You know, there's this sort of an awkward situation. Uh, and in response to that, the first thing that happens in verse 15 is, is uh, one of the Pharisees speaks up and says, you know, almost offers up like a, a beatitude, a blessing. Uh, and as he introduces or or sort of tries to cut the tension, that's what's going to get us into what I think is the main point of our text today. And so if you remember, we're doing this as uh, a picture of what it is to love God's world. Uh, And so we really we're trying to answer what does this parable teach us about loving God's world? And I think it's if, if we rightly value the kingdom of God, then it's going to lead us to inviting others to join us in it. If we rightly value God's kingdom, we will invite others to join us in it. And so this man in verse 15 uh, gives us our, our first point, which is understanding the kingdom. He says, when you give a dinner, or sorry, I'm, I'm back in verse 12 now, uh, verse 15, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, I think the first thing we need to do is get a definition for what it is we mean when we say the kingdom of God. If you've been around the church for a while, that's a phrase you've likely heard before. Uh, But if you are pressed on it, could you give a a one or two sentence definition? What is the kingdom of God? So a kingdom generally is any sort of territory over which a king has authority. their, Their geographic area that they rule over. And so in God's case, as the creator of all things and the one who upholds things by a word, we know that everything is within God's kingdom. All of creation is the kingdom of God. But there's more to it than just that. And I, I know that because Jesus, when he uh, first begins his public ministry in Mark chapter one, verse 15, he says, "The time is fulfilled. the kingdom of God is at hand." Now if the kingdom of God is everywhere, then why does Jesus feel a need to uh, specify that now the kingdom of God is at hand? It's because he's referring to what's called the Messianic kingdom, or the, the kingdom of God's chosen one. And this is a callback to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so in that text, God is talking to King David, and he tells David uh, he will establish David's kingdom and will raise up an offspring from his line and establish his throne forever. Now, the Pharisees knew that this was something that they were still looking forward to. They were still waiting for the Messiah to come and sit on that throne forever. And so when Jesus comes, he's saying, now is the time this has begun. But the Pharisees thought this was going to be a kingdom just like any other kingdom, earthly power. They'd have financial power, military power. And for the Pharisees themselves, they assumed as leaders of the Jews that they would be receiving political power as well. They, their uh, their own personal power would increase. But that's not exactly what Jesus has in mind. Uh, the disciples even thought this. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples, talking to the resurrected Christ, say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus, as an ever-patient teacher, says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father has set in place. He says, it's not time for, you to under- for this to happen yet. See, the kingdom of God is is started in Jesus' life, but it hasn't been consummated or completed yet. That's going to happen in the future. And so we have a future hope to look forward to. Uh, And this would have been prophesied as well in in the book of Isaiah. In chapter 25, verse 6, Isaiah says, "...on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine and of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined." This is what the kingdom is going to look like. It's going to be a a place where we will feast with our God and King. If you're a Christian here, is this something that you look forward to? Do you consider uh, the future banquet when you live in your daily life day to day? If if there's suffering or or sorrow in your life, do you look at those things as light and momentary in light of an eternal hope uh, where all sorrows will be turned to joy? Or even good things do we do we look at things that happen positively in our lives and celebrate them and find joy in them and think, Man, this is going to be so much greater when we 're with our king? I think that's how we're called to live, and that's that's certainly the picture that Jesus is going to paint for us i And and Another verse that sort of points us to this, particularly as Christians, um, as Miguel actually mentioned in his prayer, in Revelation, John has a a vision, a picture of this future banquet uh, where we'll be surrounded by a cloud of witnesses from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And in chapter 19, he gives us a picture of what the banquet will look like. And so he sees what this banquet's going to be, a feast we're celebrating with our king. And then in verse 9, an angel looks at John and says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, the Lamb there is Jesus, so that's unfamiliar language to you. Uh, The Lamb was a sacrifice that was offered up in, uh, in a means of paying for or atoning for the sins of mankind. And Jesus, as the perfect lamb, came and died on our behalf so that we would have a sinless uh, sinless bill of health before our God and King. And so we are invited then into this kingdom on the merit of Christ's work on our behalf. So when this Pharisee says, blessed are those who eat food in the kingdom of God, he's exactly right. All those who will eat bread in the kingdom are blessed. The problem is, he's misunderstanding what that looks like. He thought it was something that you earned because of your family heritage, because he was a child of Israel, a child of Abraham. But rather, it's those who live in a certain way or act as their heart overflows into a certain way. And that's what Jesus is going to teach us in his parable. So that brings us to the second port, uh, portion of this sermon, which is valuing the kingdom. We're going to see that in verses 16 to 20. And so... First, in verse 16, but he said to him, so Jesus now responds to the Pharisee, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. So Jesus draws them into a parable they would have quickly related to. They are sitting at a party, so they would have certainly understood sort of the cultural norms of banquets. And he says, Just like we are at a banquet now, there was once a great man who invited many people to another great banquet. Now, first century etiquette, this was a big deal. Getting invited to a banquet, uh, one pastor said it's the the pinnacle of the Jewish social life. This was uh, a big deal, not only because it was a party to go to, but because it meant something about you. It, It communicated to you that you are an important person. They had this idea of a reciprocal society if I invited you to a party, it meant that I thought I mattered enough that you would then turn around and invite me to a party. So they would only invite other people that had enough financial power or whatever it may be uh, to be able to pay back, to reciprocate. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And there was a pride that came with that too, right? You were able to go and be seen by the right people. And so it was a big deal. You, you get invited to these parties and, and that was a necessity that you would go to. And so the servant is sent out and says to, to bring everybody in to this banquet. And so the, the Pharisees, they're, they're right along, they're, they're on board with what Jesus says uh, right up until verse 18. So it says, but they all alike began to make excuses. You can almost hear the groan at the table the Pharisees saying, there's, there's no way, no no one's skipping this banquet for any reason, much less the, the excuses we get. So the first man looks and, and he says, I've bought a field, I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. See, right offhand, we're meant to read these and, and say like, these aren't very good excuses, right? The, the first two, uh, they, they bought a field or they bought oxen. They could have gone and looked at that the next day. There's no urgent matter to attend to in this, uh, and certainly they would have looked at those things before they made a purchase like that. Uh, or even the, the, the man who gets married, you know, I think we can be a little bit more sympathetic to that, but the only Old Testament logic of missing out in, in, uh, because of marriage was either due to war, you, you didn't have to serve in military service, or if there were business dealings that you had to miss out on. But it wouldn't excuse you from a party. This is a, a banquet, a party to celebrate, and so that's not an excuse that would have been used at that time. And so what we're supposed to see from all these excuses is that none of them are good enough. But I I don't want to overlook these guys so quickly that we just sort of write them off and say, "Eh, just bad excuses to not be there. I think Jesus uses these in particular because they kind of cut to our hearts as well. The first two guys, they appeal to financial security. They want to make sure that their fields and their oxen are taken care of. If they don't do it, no one else is going to do it for them. And they want to make sure they have food on the table and clothes and shelter. And the second guy, he, he appeals to his marriage. Our relationships are valuable. In my life, marriage has been one of the most sanctifying experiences I've had. I've grown in Christ because of my relationship with Sarah. None of these are inherently sinful things that are are distracting these men from the banquet. The problem is that they have overemphasized a lesser thing, and in the end have sacrificed a greater banquet for something that's not as significant but I think we can do this in our own lives as well. They found something that distracted them and took their time away. We do that all the time. I, the number of times that I've thought, man, I sure do wish I had more time to be in my Bible, but I've got work to do or something else to distract me from. Or, or you know, you get home from work and think, man, I, I sure wish I had time to, to pray with my family before bed, but, I, but I've got these other things I have to tend to we all are are just like these men. We make these sorts of excuses on a day-to-day basis. And so I I don't want to say that as a harsh word necessarily, but to see that this gets to our heart. Jesus is is trying to draw us in and let us see how much more like this we are than, than maybe we would like to believe. One author has said, Jesus is worth whatever we must not do to have him. I think 1 Corinthians ten thirty one is helpful here. It says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. I think we can interpret that through a lens of our own lives and say, whether you eat or drink or own a home, ha- have a busy work schedule, uh, have things to tend to with family and relationships, do all for the glory of God. Like I said, these, these aren't sinful things inherently, but if we overvalue them at the the cost of communion with God, that's where they become sinful things. Just like these men that made poor excuses, I think we make those as well. John Piper has a, a really good quote here. He says, "...the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world." I think there's two ways that are really easy to help us see what sorts of things in our lives distract us, and they're your bank statement and your calendar. Where do we spend most of our time and where do we spend most of our money? And that's not to say if you have a 40-hour work week, that means you need a 40-hour Bible reading plan. That's, that's an exaggeration. But we have time in the week and margins. Do we, we have resources that we can use. Do we spend any time caring for other people with our money? Do we invite other people into our home and, and have them over for meals, sacrifice our time and, and our resources, our food, at the cost of serving other people? there's a lot of ways that we can look at this and maybe overemphasize the activities when really it's meant to be, it's a heart thing. It starts in our hearts. Do we think first when we have a free evening or a free Saturday? Do we think, man, how can we use that to love the people around us, whether that's our church or people outside of our church? It's got to start in the heart and it's going to overflow into uh, these decisions that will change the way we spend our money and our time. I know uh, a couple of great ways that I have thought about this, even in the past couple of weeks, reflecting on this text. How easy is it for me in the morning to drink a cup of coffee and pull up a, uh, the news or a video on YouTube instead of setting my phone to the side and spending 15-20 minutes uh, poring over God's Word and meditating on it? Or before bed, it's, it's a lot easier to talk and, uh, you know, again, watch a video or do something distracting than it is to spend a dedicated amount of time in prayer. It, it's easy to fill our lives with uh, not inherently sinful things, but lesser things if we aren't actively making an effort to seek after God. Jesus gives a, a, a parable that helps, I think, in this in Luke 12, Uh, about a rich man who's amassed a great wealth, and he stores it in barns, and he says, I'm just going to sit back and do nothing and be lazy now that I've done all the hard work. Jesus says to that man, fool, this night your soul is required of you. We can't let anything stand in the place of God in our lives. We can't sacrifice our worship of God on any other altar. And I think we do that more often than not. And so what we see is these invited guests have misvalued the kingdom. They, they have seen other things as more valuable than the kingdom. And that's going to bring us to our third point, And this is where we really dive more into our vision statement. And this is inviting others into the kingdom. There's uh, uh, the meal is ready. There's uh, plates with food on them. There's cups with with drinks in them. There's chairs set ready for someone to come sit, and yet there's no guests that are ready to attend this man's banquet. So the the host has the option then of just packing it in, throwing it all away, or trying to find other guests. And so that's what we see in verse. 20, uh, sorry, 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. If the Pharisees were shocked that these first guests made excuses to avoid the banquet, they'd have been way more surprised when Jesus said this. See, they didn't associate with people like this. They would have thrown everything away. They would not have have moved towards tax collectors or prostitutes and had meals with them like Jesus did. And yet, this is specifically who Jesus says to invite, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Those who recognize they can't help themselves. They don't have social equity uh, to throw around to get invited to these banquets in and of themselves. And I think not just would the Pharisees have been surprised, I think those new guests are surprised just looking at the language. The master says to bring them in. See, they they couldn't reciprocate. They wouldn't have had the uh, the funds to go to this party and then invite the the man over for a banquet in their own home. And so they probably were hesitant to say, uh, you know, I I don't think that I belong there. I I don't think I have enough good in me to be able to come to this banquet. And yet, That's exactly who the man goes after. And this is a callback to verse 13. It's the same list of four people that Jesus used in telling the the Pharisees, stop inviting your friends, invite people like this to your banquet. And it's because the reciprocal nature of of our parties don't don't look like the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God isn't reciprocal. We don't bring some blessing to God when we come to him. Uh, the the songs we sing, we don't tarry till we're better. We don't bring anything. We just come as willing guests. And that's the picture that Jesus is trying to paint for these Pharisees. He doesn't expect them to bring some sort of uh, gift back to him as though they could be a blessing back to this man, or we could be a blessing to God. Rather, he invites them in because the heart of God is towards his people. This is a, a reflection of that heavenly banquet that we talked about. This is, this is a reflection of the kinds of people that we will sing and feast with in heaven. And I think it's beautiful when we look at verse 22 that the servant has done this. He brings these people in and he tells, uh, he tells his master that there's still room. What a blessing it is to know that, that there's still room at the table, Right now, we know because we're still here, there is still room at the table. And so the master, not wanting to see any seats unfilled, sends his servant back out again. So in verse 23, the master says, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. And so if we've got the streets and lanes taken care of within the town, now he's sending his servant out of the town. And so uh, back in this time, the towns would have had walls around them and gates that allowed people to come in and leave uh, to protect the citizens inside from those people outside of the town. So when he says, go out to the highways and hedges, he's saying, go out of the city to go to the people that we don't want in the town. He's sending them out in love to people that the people within the normal circle would say, we don't associate with those people at all. This is way outside of our normal comfort zone of people that we, we naturally gravitate to. And yet, the master is inviting them into his home. And I think, you know, we don't have a, a caste system in America, at least not formally. But there's, you know, around the world places where if you're in the upper echelon of society, you only deal with people in that echelon. And if you're at the bottom of society, no one is going to talk to you except for the people that are also down at the bottom with you this is the kind of people that are insinuated in the highways and hedges. It's, it's the outcasts of society, the untouchables. No one would have associated with these people. And yet, the master goes out and says, compel them to come in. And compel there, that's, that's even more forceful than telling them to bring them in. He's saying, you're going to need to really nudge them along. There's the idea of, of, of them not being able to reciprocate, but more than that, the, these people couldn't have taken a shower or a bath to clean up, they, they couldn't have gotten a fresh change of clothes to have come in and looked a certain way. It would have been obvious that they looked like outsiders at this party. But that's the nature of God. That's, that's God's heart towards people. He doesn't ask them to, to change drastically before they come to Him. He wants them to come and, and be changed at the banquet. I think the song that we sang is super helpful in that. We, we don't tarry till we're better, because if we did, if we waited until we were healed from every problem we had, we would never come. But God comes, he sends his servant out to us and compels us to come in. If, if you're here and you are maybe uh, somebody who struggles to believe that God could love somebody that's done the things you've done or uh, struggles with the things you struggle with or suffers through the things you suffer through, Look at the the heart of God here. He wants you to come in and enjoy the banquet. He's throwing a party and wants you to be there. See, Jesus does this sort of thing repeatedly. I I think most clearly in John chapter 4. Jesus goes to a well, and while he's there, he he starts a conversation with a Samaritan woman who's there. And her response is, "'Are you a Jewish man talking to me, a Samaritan woman?' See, she recognizes that Jews didn't deign to talk to Samaritans. They they wouldn't have uh, gone down to talk to those kinds of people. And yet, Jesus does so. And more than that, a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman, there's a movement in love. Jesus cares for her, he talks to her, and he calls her to follow him. This is the, the heart of God Towards his people. He, he includes those people that we often immediately would write off or not even associate with. I think this is a real heart check when we think about the the nature of God and his moving towards people that we would probably move away from. And so after we see that he has gone and included new guests, uh, the, the verses conclude with an exclusion, a, a, a rejection of those first guests in verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. I think this is where Jesus gets the Pharisees back on board at, at least for a second. They would have agreed, no, th- those worthless guests that made those bad excuses, they don't deserve to taste any food from the banquet. They, they lost, they forfeited their privilege. So of course they're not going to get anything. But it's it's important that we notice exactly what's happening here with the language. If, if you've got your Bible, you'll see a footnote on the word you that says the word there is plural. See, what's happening is Jesus isn't telling, uh, talking in parable anymore. This isn't the singular master talking to the singular servant. This is Jesus talking to the plural Pharisees around him. We're out of the parable, and he's now directly accusing the Pharisees of doing what these first invited guests do. They have forfeited their place at the banquet. It's a warning telling them, you have valued things more than you valued the kingdom of God. And notice, he says, these men shall not taste my banquet. See, Jesus repeatedly in his ministry makes it a point to prove by his actions and by his words that he is God. He is the Second Samuel 7 messianic king who's going to establish the throne and sit on the throne forever. He is the the host in Isaiah 25 that's going to host the messianic banquet. He is the one throwing this party, the one hosting these people into his home. As we reflect on this, I think it's important to notice that the significant part of this banquet isn't the food. It's the fact that we'll be in the presence of the king. That's the reason we go and celebrate. It's because God himself is going to be there and he's excluding those who, dis, who, who wrongly value the fact that there's an opportunity to be with our king. He's inviting those in who see it as a great reward. And so I, I want to conclude by, by thinking specifically about how this speaks to our vision statement. What does it mean to love God's world from this parable? And I've got three uh, takeaways here. So the first one, I think this is the natural question that ought to arise any time we read a parable like this, which is how do I make sure that I don't miss the kingdom? That's the warning, right, that that Jesus has given. So how do I make sure that I'm not in the wrong uh, group of people here? And I think the right answer is that we have to love God's glory rightly. That's why our vision statement is what it is. It's not a super creative uh, new teaching. It's because it reflects the teachings of Scripture. God's glory must be loved first if we're going to go out and love to God's people. What are the things in your life that distracts you from loving God's glory? Is it uh, the way you spend your time? Is it your phone? Is it your work? Is it leisure, entertainment? Is it friends and family that distracts you from spending your time uh, worshiping our God and King? In the parable, they, they gave us examples that weren't inherently sinful. There are sinful things that distract us as well. See, I'm not concerned specifically with the exact outworking of this in your life, but I I am concerned that your heart would reveal what it is you love. Has this been an opportunity to maybe think, man, how are we using our calendar or our money? Or what is the first thing that I think about when I think, okay, what do I love the most? What what would I hate the most if it was taken away from me? What what would be the the most angering thing if it was a consequence that was brought to me? And, And is that in some degree our relationship with God, or is it inherently or is it naturally things that are parallel, horizontal, things of the world? Uh, I I think we all sort of felt trapped at home. Was it, man, I I really wish I was able to get out and go to whatever I normally do on on my Saturday afternoons? Or did we think, man, this is an opportunity to slow down and reflect, uh, rejoice that that we've had a a weather formation that we're not used to having, and then it's a blessing and a gift from God? If there are things you're able to see in your lives that are distracting you from this relationship, you're called to repent of those, turn away from those and trust in Christ uh, who who has called us to be his own. Second, if you're a Christian, how much do you relate to the servant in this parable? How much, when, when you see the servant who's sent out by the master and he immediately goes out and does the will of the master, he goes and invites new guests in, How much does that look like your own life? Do you often do this sort of work? Do you speak to people that you know aren't Christians and ask them if they are interested in spiritual things? Do you invite them to church? Do you invite them into conversations about your faith? You see, the master tells the servant to do this, but we're told to do this by Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 28, uh, the the Great Commission passage, he says, "'Go and make disciples of all nations.'" Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right after he's corrected the disciples' false understanding of the kingdom, he says, go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's sending them out. And then again in Matthew 24, he says, the gospel of the kingdom of God will go to all nations, to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. So he's saying, go out and share the message, the message that I have brought, the message of salvation through faith in Christ. And if this is something that maybe you're, you're timid on or maybe don't naturally move towards, uh, I, there's many things that you can do to think through to, to maybe give you a, a greater confidence in, in your ability, but really a greater confidence in God's ability to save people, even if we stumble over our words. Uh, the first, uh, if find a brother or sister or friend or family member or somebody and, and pick up a book. There's a lot of books that, that the staff would recommend to you that are short. They're not big, thick, deep theology books but are practical, uh, quick reads that you could think through. Okay, this is a good strategy of starting conversation, being able to speak truthfully and honestly about your convictions. Th- consider reading a book with somebody else, praying through it, and then going out and practicing with that brother or sister. Another really obvious example would be the evangelism class that, that we're going to offer here soon. Matt Sinclair is prepared and is going to go through four weeks of uh, evangelism-related material. And at least once, you'll get the chance to go out with the group and practice this. Go and speak to people about your faith. If this is something that's maybe... Uh, frightening to you or or you just naturally shy away from, this could be a great on-ramp, sort of a long runway into maybe building a practice that that will shape the rest of your life. Last, and this is directed specifically to the non-Christians, as you think about this banquet, isn't it something that you want to be at? The idea that there's a a party, a feast, where everyone is included, that there's an inclusiveness to the nature of who's there. There's no exclusion based on class or uh, financial standing or um, intelligence or anything like that. There's no cliques that are forming that you have to break up to, to be able to make your way in. God has invited you into the banquet to be with him, with the one who loves you more than anybody else could. Is that something that you would want to be at? I pray that you would come and know him well enough to come and follow him and be at this banquet. So we, we've seen in this, in this parable that God has taught us we have to love God's glory rightly. We have to love the kingdom of God rightly, and that will lead us to inviting, a, a, inviting others to join us in it. And so we, we've had the, the three sort of main points were understanding the kingdom, valuing the kingdom and then inviting others. Into the kingdom. Um, what I have noticed as I've thought through this is how um, easy it is for me to think on these things and, and quickly let them go. I could read through this and study through this. this. is I was supposed to have preached this last week, so I've gone through this sermon multiple times. It's easier for me to think about this and then turn away and then forget about it, knowing like that was, that was helpful for me to think about in the moment, but now I can think about something else. I would pray that that as you uh, take a moment and just reflect on these things that you would think about specific relationships who are people you can talk to at work at home wherever it may be whatever avenues you have and think how can I go and speak to these people about the uh, about my faith there've been some some words from a hymn that have been sort of ringing through my head the past couple weeks and I'll read these after I read, just take a moment or two and pray through these things in your own life, and then I'll close us in prayer. The hymn reads, we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. Take a moment now.